Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Unrestricted. And today we have uh, Alan Fagan, the former executive vice president, chief professional officer of the Orthodox Union, a very, very good dear friend of mine. Alan, thank you for coming on my program. I really appreciate it. My pleasure to be with you, Steve. Okay, so we have so much to talk about. Um, and, you know, it's called unrestricted. I know you're a lawyer. That means it's very difficult for you to try to be unrestricted. But let's see what we can do. So let's talk a little bit about your transition. I mean, very few people that I know have gone from being a lay leader, not just a lay leader, but really involved in the Orthodox Union for, for decades, then to becoming the professional who's really running it. So let's talk about how that came about. And also, what did you learn as a professional that you didn't understand as a lay leader? So let me, let me start with uh, how did it come about. I uh, retired from the practice of law after practicing for close to 40 years uh, at the end of uh, 2013. Uh, and I think when word got out that I was retiring, and my plan was to actually retire, Marty Nakamson, who was then president uh, of, uh, of the OU and was heading up uh, a search for a new executive vice president, approached me and asked if I would think about um, taking that position. Uh, it was not something that uh, I was I was looking to do. It certainly was not something that my wife was looking for me to do. Uh, we really both had plans of um, of uh, fully retiring, but as I thought about it, it really offered the opportunity to be able to do as a professional many of the things that I had. Uh, hope to be able to do as a lay leader uh, once I retired. So it, it was an offer that really was uh, too good to pass up. When when I was asked by the OU's um, uh, leadership, their executive committee and their board, how long I would commit to take the position, this was now the spring of 2014, I told them that I was willing to commit until the end of the following fiscal year meaning June of 2015, uh, so roughly roughly 18, uh, 18 months, which I thought would be enough time to do the things that needed to be done and needed to be accomplished, and then the OU could find uh, uh, a new leader. As it turned out, uh, I, I held the position for close to seven years. So a little, little bit different than what my, uh, my retirement plan uh, had been. Well, that's because, Alan, as, as someone who was the lay leader, we didn't let you go. I mean, it's as simple as that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, you asked, uh, Steve, what, what the differences uh, were or the primary differences between uh, being in the lay leadership of the organization and its uh, senior professional. 
I, I would say um, the primary difference was really learning curve. It's, it's probably uh, fair to say that other than the president of the organization, which, which you would certainly understand well, there was really no one in the lay leadership of the organization that saw it in its immense totality. The OU then, now probably even bigger, was an enormous uh, organization. I think it's something that many people don't realize. We had uh, at the time probably something like 2,000 people who received an OU paycheck. Global organization, operations in in multiple countries uh, around the world, dozens and dozens of programs, and a budget then uh, in the nine figures. At one point shortly after I started, we tried to plot the size of the OU, at least based on its budget, against other Jewish not-for-profits. And our determination was that if we, if we left out universities and hospitals under Jewish auspices, that the OU would have been in the top five Jewish not-for-profits in the world, probably in the top three. Uh, just a vast, vast organization. I don't think that there was any lay leader, with the exception of the president, who understood the scope of the OU's operations. I certainly uh, didn't. I had, uh, as you know, headed uh, the OU Youth Commission, which was responsible for NCSY. For a time, I headed the JLIC Commission, which was responsible for campus programming. But most lay leaders would focus on their individual program or commission. We, we called our, our lay committees uh, commissions. So they knew those very, very well. They knew the staff, they knew the programs, but they didn't know every other program uh, and certainly not the rest of the staff in the organization. And, and so their perspective was a relatively narrow uh, perspective. Right. And, right. and it was impossible uh, uh, as a lay leader to really understand the full scope of, of the vastness of the, uh, of the organization. So I, I probably spent the first year uh, just getting to know the programs and the people. The, the other major difference was the nature and scope of responsibilities. Uh, lay leadership was responsible for setting priorities, for, for setting an agenda for the organization, and certainly for making certain that things were being done appropriately and, and, and with appropriate uh, oversight. But the actual implementation of all of those determinations was in the hands of, uh, of the staff. So very, very fundamental difference in responsibilities. Right. No, no, there's no question about it. The, the scope of the OU is enormous. Uh, and you're right. Very few people understand that. And still to this day, if you speak to people who are out, they OU kosher, everyone knows OU kosher, of course. But then you start to mention, well, did you realize that NCSY is part of it and Yachad and JLIC and, and so on? And then people didn't mention, even if you go to a shul, Rabbi Weinrub and I would always talk about how we would spend a Shabbos in a shul and then find out later on people didn't know 
Oh, I didn't know that Yachad was part of the OU. Yes, well, didn't, didn't you hear me speak over Shabbos? I mentioned that. But I guess because the OU kashrus is just so large and so vital to the Jewish community that it just subsumes everything else in a way, correct? Correct, absolutely correct. And, and even the individual programs are often not associated with the home office. Uh, NCSY is a perfect example. I, I remember, uh, Steve attending um, an event that we did one summer when NCSY had uh, probably something like 1,500 teens uh, in Israel. And, and there was a major donor who was there at this event, uh, a major donor to, uh, to NCSY. Uh, and he came over to me at the event and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm, I'm the executive vice president of the OU. And he said, no, I know that, but what are you doing at an NCSY event? <laughs> Uh, so it's 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 a well kept uh, secret. You think that has to do a lot with with branding? I know. I mean, I always. You think the OU would have been better off if we all the programs were called OU, like Chabad? Everything is called Chabad. You know, National Council of Young Israel. Everything is called National Council of Young Israel. Somehow, from a branding, we wanted it to be individualistic, but yet it's come back to to hurt us to, to a certain extent. I, I don't know. What do you think about that? It, you know, it it, it was a, a constant uh, a constant uh, debate, and, and I think there were a couple of dimensions uh, to it. W one was while we tried to think about branding, our focus was on the programming, and we were much less concerned uh, about our own public relations, uh, as it as it were. So that was part of it. It, it just wasn't it, it wasn't the focus. The focus was was getting services out to the community. But part of it was also, I, I think, a sense that at least for some of our programs, while there was an advantage to being linked to an orthodox organization, there were aspects of the programming that we thought would be easier to push out into the community if that identification was not necessarily as, as clear. Portions of NCSY certainly fell into that category. Uh, portions of, of, of Yachad fell into that category, uh, and so on. So it was it was a constant uh, constant debate, right? And still still going on to this day. And I'm not sure I'm not sure I really I really know the answer. But as you look at the o OU today, it certainly has changed. I mean, certainly under your leadership, there's no question you you instilled a very a sense of professional work ethic and the management. Uh, I think that the OU is certainly a much more professional organization. But how do you think it's really changed over the from the time you you were you you were involved way back when when I think Shelley Rudolph was the president. So how do you see the OU today different and this constituent base? Do you see it as the same or is it that changed also? It's a great question. I think it's I think it's changed just as the community has changed. It's evolved in, in a whole variety of, of respects. Certainly the nature of the programming has evolved to keep pace with the needs of the community. But I think probably one of the fundamental differences, you, you think about the OU, the name of the OU is the Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations of America. It was initially founded as a congregationally based organization. It was an umbrella organization of shuls. 
and a major aspect of the OU's mission was to provide services to congregations. That was the primary unit of organization. Certainly when NCSY started, National Conference of Synagogue Youth. I'm not sure anybody remembers that NCSY is actually began as a, as a synagogue-based organization. And, and I think one of the major uh, changes uh, that's taken place uh, over the years within the OU is that the primary unit of organization, of the delivery of services, has moved from shuls, and, and certainly there still are services provided directly to shuls, but has moved to a much broader national and in many cases international base so that programs are being provided for communities and for individuals within the community outside of a, of a synagogue-based context. And I think that's been a very, very significant, almost sea change. Right. People would always ask me, I'm sure people always ask you this question, talk about modern orthodoxy. I always told them I never really understood the term, but let's give it a shot. And what do you think modern orthodoxy represents today compared to what it did, let's say, 30 years ago? And why is it that we find, like, everyone says everything's moving to the right? First of all, I mean, do you agree with that? And if you do, why do you think that's happened? Well, I, I think the first thing to say, and, and I know you have said this uh, uh, repeatedly, is that all of these labels are convenient shorthands, but I think are becoming less and less meaningful. Where modern orthodoxy begins and ends, where, quote, right-wing begins and ends, uh, the lines are becoming so incredibly blurred that uh, I think almost to the point of becoming uh, of becoming meaningless. There's no question that there are some significant differences within various of our communities, but there are also a lot more similarities than uh, I think we all uh, recognize. Some of it is entirely superficial. It probably focuses more on styles of, of, of dress than on anything else. I, I don't consider that to be, frankly, a, uh, a particularly meaningful distinction. You know, the, the fact that I wear a, a, a black hat to shul on Friday night and a yarmulke during the week, uh, I don't think changes the nature of my persona vis-a-vis -vis someone else. Uh, the fact that I don't wear a white shirt uh, on a daily basis, I don't think changes the nature of, uh, of my persona. So, so I think there are some, some very superficial differences. There are some that I think are much more meaningful. And, and I think they're different than what we used to believe were kind of key differences between the, quote, modern Orthodox community uh, and the more yeshivish part of the community, which was, do you send your kids to college? Uh, what's your relationship to, uh, uh, to Israel and, and, and to Zionism? I think a lot of those uh, distinctions have, um, in many respects, have, have broken down. Where I do think there are some very significant differences, and, and we can debate endlessly whether these are for the better or for the worse, 
is in the relationship to secular education. I believe that in, in the yeshiva world, there is an enormous premium uh, placed on traditional yeshiva learning, that is, learning Gemara and learning Gemara for an extensive uh, period of time, both in the normal, you know, kind of 1 through 12 uh, school system, but certainly in the post-high school uh, uh, system of uh, Masifta learning. Uh, and I think there's an enormous premium uh, placed on that to the exclusion, not the total exclusion, but but to the significant exclusion of a robust secular education and, and the premium that's placed on a robust uh, secular education. Uh, I think one of the aspects of that relates to the degree of higher education and the nature of higher education uh, that students... Uh, receive and and the proliferation of many many options that differentiate between w- what I would call parnasa based mm-hmm, degrees right. and a broader liberal education and by liberal I'm not talking politically liberal but 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 a broader right. secular uh, right. education and and i think now there are thousands and thousands of young men and women who are getting college degrees uh, and in some cases advanced the graduate degrees where the premium is placed on getting them as quickly as possible with a primary parnasa focus without uh seeing perhaps the benefits of a broader secular exposure, exposure to the great books, exposure to art, exposure to music, all seen as things that are just really not necessary because they don't have a Parnassa hook uh, to them. I I I think that's a very substantial difference. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. You know, I think it's a very, very good point. You're right. People getting degrees, everyone's getting a degree today online, wherever you go, and, you know, could you do it in uh, the shortest period of time to, to really study the humanities or to, you know, to, you know, to look at the arts and to, to really to read a good book or, you know, and you're right. I agree. I'm not so sure about the Israel Israel thing. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a kind of a big difference between the what I would call modern Orthodox communities and the more yeshivish as far as the relationship to Israel. I mean, I think everyone, we all love Israel. I don't, there's no question. But how we, you know, uh, outwardly display that certainly is, is, a big, is a big difference. And I, you know, I, I mentioned that sometimes even, you know, I know, you know, you, you also live in several communities, but one of them is my community in the five towns. And, uh, you know, we, we see it in the five towns. And there was a speaker who came to Youngsville of Woodmere uh, from Israel, one of the people in the cabinet, the Knesset. And I mentioned to him, because uh, he was so impressed with the amount of people, I said, you know, if I were to invite you to go to several schools, they wouldn't want you to come. He said, what? What are you talking about? I said, no, I, uh, it's unfortunate, but it's true. 
And this was, this was someone with a kippah surugan, a wonderful person. So I do think that's also a difference. Somehow we have to figure it out. I think it's more window dressing, honestly, but somehow we haven't gotten over that. But, uh, you know, I, I agree with you that the, some of the labels really just, uh, they don't really make that much sense anymore. But still, we try to do everything we can to create as much achtas as we can. Certainly we need it. There's, there's no, no question about that. Well, look, one of the things, unfortunately, that's uniting the Jewish people today is anti-Semitism. So you've, I know you've probably attended more sessions than you ever thought in your life about anti-Semitism, but somehow I don't think we're coming up with any real solution. Do you, you have any thoughts on that? I, a, a few, uh, but I completely agree with you that this is, this is a problem that's um, at least, uh, least 2,000 years old. So I don't, I don't think it's a problem that's going away. The manifestations of, of the problem, I think, are getting uh, significantly more dangerous and significantly more uh, complicated. So a couple of thoughts. Uh, first, I think there's no question that many of the most vir virulent forms of anti-Semitism, and by that I mean not words, but actions, physical attacks, verbal assaults, assaults on property and person, there's no question that the brunt of that is being faced by the Orthodox community, the visibly right. Jewish community. And I think that is something that is being recognized uh, across the spectrum of, of the Jewish world. But in many respects, it is a uniquely uh, or substantially Orthodox problem. One thought. Second, I, I think to, to some extent... We as a community do ourselves a disservice by the overuse of the term anti-Semitism, that because of the sensitivities that are involved, we're too quick to label certain actions, certain statements as anti-Semitic that aren't necessarily so. They may be crude, they may be unfortunate, but they're not necessarily anti-Semitic. And I, I think we do ourselves a disservice in trivi trivializing real anti-Semitism by calling anything that we don't like that's directed at a Jewish audience uh, as, uh, as anti-Semitism. And finally, and, and, and this I think is in many respects the, the most difficult aspect of current anti-Semitism is how to appropriately differentiate between opposition to actions by the Israeli government and anti-Semitic conduct. Now, the IHRA definition, I think, is, right. is, is certainly helpful. But like any broad definition of anything, it leaves huge amounts of room for interpretation. And there are those, including many within our own Jewish community, uh, who take exception to a variety of activities uh, that are part of uh, Israeli government uh, policy, many of which we vehemently disagree with. But the fact that we disagree doesn't change the notion that those who disagree with us have the right to protest, have the right 
uh, to their own opinions uh, with respect to Israeli policy, and that those opinions are not necessarily the opinions of anti-Semites, they're the opinions of those who differ. And I think that's become an extremely complicated subject. And in, in many respects, much of the activity that we see uh, that's labeled as anti-Semitism falls on the side of the line that clearly is. There's a kind of protest that clearly is anti-Semitism, treating Israel differently than you would treat anyone else, singing, singling them out for approbation, telling one side of the story, telling untruths about the nature of the conduct, I think clearly falls on, on the anti-Semitic side of the line. Legitimate protest probably does not. And, and exactly how one draws that line, I think, is extraordinarily complicated and has therefore made, at least in that respect, uh, the definition of anti-Semitism uh, far more nuanced and far more complicated. Unfortunately, much of it remains crystal clear. Uh, somebody gets punched on the street, you know, following a, 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 an anti-Semitic epithet, there's nothing that you can call that other than blatant, vicious anti-Semitism. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I agree with you about that. On a personal note, so when you left the OU after seven years, what were your feelings? I mean, did you, you feel disappointed? Uh, did you, uh, I'm sure you felt elated that the yoke of responsibility, I know that I've had this conversation with former presidents and we've all said, while the day after, there was certainly a feeling that, wow, we really will we'll miss this. It was such an important part of our life. But there was also a relief that the burden was over. Did you feel the same way? The answer is yes. <laughs> yes, yes to, uh, uh, to both. And I think it would be dishonest to say uh, that there's not a day that I wake up or go to bed that I don't uh, uh, that I don't miss it. You probably know better than anyone that the satisfaction that one derives from at least being in the position to make a positive contribution to our community is is one that uh, no one uh, would would give up. So yes, I feel relieved. Uh, that I don't have that responsibility, but more importantly, that I now have some time finally uh, in, in my life uh, to devote to my wife and to my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, which is the greatest blessing, uh, I think, of um, uh, now having uh, additional time to, uh, uh, to spend. That was my hope. And now finally, post-COVID, my... my one of the reasons that uh, that I retired from the OU was to be able to travel uh, more and spend more time with my wife. Now, <laughs> post uh, post uh, uh, COVID, we can we can finally um, uh, do that. So that part is great, uh, but there's not a day that I don't uh, that I don't miss it. You know, it's interesting, uh, Steve. My my tenure began in crisis and ended in crisis, and and I don't think there was a day that there wasn't, you know, sort of some right. issue. I started uh, around Pesach time uh, in 2014. Uh, that summer, as, as you remember, was the Gaza war. And I remember I was, on, I was on vacation on the West Coast, 
when we saw the first reports of the uh, uh, of the hostilities, and I was sitting with my uh, with my iPad looking at these first uh, news reports, uh, and I handed my iPad to, to my wife uh, Judy, and she looked at it. And she turned to me and she said, you're going back, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, yes, I am. And she said, I'm coming with you. And that then began probably the most difficult two weeks uh, yep. I think I've ever spent as we, you know, kind of lurched from one decision to another about whether all of the kids that we had planned on sending to Israel that summer, whether we would allow the trips to go what we would do with those that were already there and where we would move them and what we would do with programs that were scattered uh, literally uh, across the United States uh, and, and, and the globe. So it, it began that way. I ended in the few months following uh, COVID. And there again, we, we spent, I don't know how many, you know, sleepless nights uh, trying to determine whether it was safe to allow our kids in summer programs, how those programs would be operated, what kinds of arrangements and, and safety requirements would be put into place, uh, and so on. And, and, and so I was sort of, you know, bracketed uh, over the years from, from one crisis uh, to another. And you don't realize the, uh, the enormity of the responsibility uh, I used to I used to joke with my wife when she was head of school at uh, Ramaz, and the kids, the seniors, would go on their senior trip. She would sleep with a phone under her pillow, lest you know there be some 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 problem or, or accident, God forbid. Um, and I used to kid her about that. Uh, and then when I was in that uh, situation, y- you realize that. You know, here are literally thousands of kids whose care and safety has been entrusted to your organization and that has made its reputation on how it fulfills that responsibility. And so many parents uh, in that summer of, of 2014 would call to say, we don't know what decision you're going to make, but we know whatever decision you make, we will be comfortable with because the OU made it and we know how much care and and, and concern goes into making those decisions. And you probably know this uh, better than than anyone. It it takes decades to establish a reputation and about 10 minutes to lose it. Absolutely. No question. But Alan, you did a great job. And, you know, people don't even realize the enormity of the summer programs. I mean, sometimes I go to meet someone who runs a camp of 500. And I said, well, you know, we have several thousand kids. And guess what? They're all over the world. They're not in one place. They're in Thailand now. They're in Poland. They're in Israel. They're in Ukraine. Who knows where they are? It's amazing. Anyway, listen, I think if you listen to the podcast, you know the last part of the podcast is something I call the lightning lightning round Quick questions, just kind of give me like more or less the first thought you have when I ask you the question. If you can't answer it, it's okay. Don't worry about it. One, who's the greatest person you ever met? My wife. Okay. I think it's a good answer. Besides your wife. Let's go to the next thing. Okay. I don't want to let you off so easy, okay? I must say that one of the most impressive people that I've ever met was Prime Minister Netanyahu. With all of the difficulties surrounding his tenure, and there are many, 
yes. and with all the criticism that one can make, and there is plenty. During his tenure, you think about the strides that Israel made in its economy, in its harnessing of technology, in what it did with respect to water resources, in the value that was created in so many companies within Israel, and in its international reputation. The, the number of countries that come to call on Israel as equals. The, the fact that the, the prime minister of India comes to right. a country with, I don't know, one-tenth of one percent of, of, of right. its population because it considers Israel to be such an important trading partner. I think much of that, uh, frankly, is as a result uh, of, of the work that um, uh, the prime minister uh, did. And, and I think he needs to be given enormous credit for that. And no question. He's an absolutely brilliant man also. I think people don't understand um, how brilliant he really is. What, is there anyone who uh, you'd like to meet who you haven't met yet? I've never met Nikki Haley. She's an impressive person. Now, you've heard a lot of speeches in your day. Who's the best speaker you ever heard? Best speaker, there, there are two. Uh, I think the, the number one spot goes to Abba Eben, uh, and the number two spot, but a very close second, uh, to Rabbi Joseph Lukstein. Ah, okay, Joseph Lukstein. Very interesting. Very, very good. Um, now, I'm, the answer, I'm going to ask you a question. The answer cannot be your wife, okay? <laughs> okay. Okay. So if you were in a foxhole, who would you want with you? George Patton. <laughs> okay, that's a good answer. Who do you think was the most intimidating person you ever met in your life? You know, in, in, some, in some ways, I would say uh, President Obama. Not intimidating in a, the sense that we probably mean it, meaning that you felt fearful, but certainly in the contexts in which uh, I met him and uh, listened to him, th there was an intellectual incisiveness about him, whether you agreed with him or not. And certainly in the meetings that uh, I participated in, most of which related to uh, the prospective deal with uh, Iran, we right. vehement, vehemently uh, disagreed. There was a certain incisiveness to his intellect that made it extraordinarily difficult. Uh, he had a command of the facts. He had a command of the room. He had an enormous uh, emotional IQ reading people and situations in, in small groups uh, that uh, made it very, very difficult uh, to take contrary uh, views. Yeah, you know, I think it's a good point. I, I, I remember having meetings with him also in small groups. I think it's a very good, uh, very, very good point. What about, I know that uh, you're, um, I, I know where you dive and we don't talk about this publicly here because not that it's anything wrong with it. It's wonderful. But Shabbos, What's your favorite tefillah on Shabbos? Lechadodi. Ah, okay, that's so beautiful. Especially in the synagogue you go to, it's amazing. Eish Kodesh, that's where Alan Davins, and Friday night in that, I recommend it highly to anyone to go to really just be macabre Shabbos. Wow, there are very few places like it. Who's your favorite uh, personality in the whole Tanakh? Uh, Moshe. 
What about your favorite Chag? Sukkot. Oh, really? That's funny. Many, many people say Pesach, but that's so interesting. Now, I, like, you talked about travel before, and I know you've traveled a lot. So is there any place you still like to go that you haven't been to yet? Uh, yes. I've never been to Greece. I've never been to the, uh, uh, to the Greek Isles. Those are very high on my list. Thank God, I think I've started to cross off uh, many of the uh, many of the places that uh, I had always hoped to uh, uh, hope to get to. Uh, but but those are very high on my list. Oh, okay. Anyway, thank you so much, Alan, for coming on the program. We've had Alan Fagan, who was the former executive vice president and chief professional officer at the Orthodox Union. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And I'm sure the listening audience is going to enjoy it. Have a great day. Be well. Bye-bye. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savitsky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.